Welcome back to Ecotones. As always, I'm your host, Pat Milligan, from the University of Florida. This episode is being produced from the road, um, far away from my co-host from last episode, so Mike's going to have to rejoin us at a later time. In this episode, I chat with Anne-Marie Hodge, Samantha Calkins, and Gabriella Mizell. The former two work together to study a species of cactus that has been recently introduced to the Lycipia Plateau of Kenya. And Gabby studies various aspects of an ant-plant partnership that helps to shape the savanna. She also helped me on a behavior research project involving an invasive species of ant this summer. We'll get more into that later and also talk about some of the less scientific parts of living at a remote station, such as culture shock and what researchers do with their free time. We're riding into Beyonce's Hold Up, which might be my favorite track from last year's Lemonade. This album came out when all four of us were at Impala Research Center at the same time, and when you're in the middle of nowhere with some quirky ecologists, people start to miss music like uh, like Queen Bee, Justin Bieber, Fifth Harmony. For some strange reason, it reminds them of home. So strap in, um, and I hope you enjoy the interview with these three. They don't love you like I love you. Slow down, they don't love you like I love you. Back up, they don't love you like I love you. Step down, they don't love you like I love you. Can't you see there's no other man above you? What a wicked way to treat the girl that loves you. Hold up, they don't love you like I love you. Slow down, they don't love you like I love you. Is the red light gonna bother you? Because I can't I can't take it off. Mm-mm. Now it is. <laughs> I didn't notice yeah, until you pointed you it out. It. Yeah. Thanks, Pat. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, no problem. Okay. <laughs> Introduce yourselves. What do you guys do around here? Sam, you're up first. I can't go first. You're in the I'm hot right. seat. What? Amory's my boss. She has to go okay. first. Okay, well, I'll go first. Why don't you go first and you like kind of build up okay. to your boss. Okay. Yeah. And I'll base your recommendation letter on what you say. <laughs> <laughs> well, shit. <laughs> in that case, um, I'm, I'm Sam Calkins, and I'm here as a field tech working for Amory Hodge. And she is studying baboon cactus interactions. And she's the best boss ever. <laughs> Good save. <laughs> I'm Anne Marie Hodge. I'm Sam Calkins' boss. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm a PhD student at the University of Wyoming. Um, and I'm doing my dissertation on interactions between baboons and invasive cactus in central Kenya and interactions with other native mammals in the cactus. Um, and last but not least. All right. I'm Gabby Mizell, and I'm an undergrad at University of Florida um, in Todd Palmer's ecology lab, uh, studying the ant acacia mutualism. Um, I looked at changes in herbivory across on the ontogeny of acacia trees. Cool. So I wanted to get you three together because... But you guys are all, you know, here and fairly, like, proficient scientists. We all got here in kind of different ways, so. And we've shared lots of chocolate and wine, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got to know each other real well. Yeah. <laughs> also, just for the podcast note, a swift, just almost nail pat in the head swooping mm-hmm. in from behind. Yep. And yeah. was I phased? No, he didn't even no. blink. No, no, no. <laughs> didn't even blink. Cool as ice. They yeah. know. The birds know. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah, so... Sam, you've been out here before, though, right? Yeah, I was, first time at Impala. I was out here in 2014 as a student with the St. Lawrence University Kenya Semester Program. Um, so I was here interning with Matt Snyder on the Hippo Project. So just for a month that time, and that's when I met Anne Marie, and that's how I landed this gig. No, but he was a great boss too. He was 
outgoing and super smart. So I learned a lot from him. Matt Snyder, currently a graduate student at the University of North Carolina, previously worked at Impala Research Center as a technician on the HIPPO Research Project. He was a predecessor to an earlier guest on our podcast, Doug Branch. The last time that Sam Calkins was at Impala, she worked with Matt on a variety of projects, including data entry, surveys of the plant species in hippo habitats, and sorting through lots of insects, mainly ticks. She just barely missed the chance to see the research team tag hippos with GPS trackers attached to crossbow arrows. When the team was trying to understand how hippo movement um, differs in the day and during the night, they actually used GPS tracking units attached to modified crossbow bolts to track the animals. The bolts, which had an effective range of about 30 meters, would lodge in the thick hide of the hippo and collect precise location data until the arrow fell out of the hide. The researchers would then retrieve the arrow, download the data, and learn more about how hippos move and behave throughout their daily cycle. Now she's returned to Impala a second time. How did you get started out here, Amory? Because I've never really asked you this, but... That's a whole nother story. So I, uh, my first PhD project failed, and that was what I did my first season and a half out here. I first came out in 2012. Um, actually, before I started my PhD program, my advisor brought me out here when he had a class just to get the lay of the land, take all my elephant photos and play tourists and get that all in my, out of my system. <laughs> and I came back for six months in 2013 and was trapping small carnivores for this really awesome dream project, small carnivore study I had. And I wasn't trapping enough of the species, I wasn't catching enough different species to answer the questions I was interested in. Got applied for some grants for this baboon cactus stuff, got a lot more money for it and ended up switching to that. Mm-hmm. So then 2014 was my first full season on the Cactus Project, and now it's 2016, and I'm hopefully wrapping up. So do you think it was it was a popular project because it's like invasive species? and Yeah, yeah. It, it has all the sexy things. It has primates, it has invasive species, it has like, it also ties into like livelihoods of local pastoralists, conservation stuff, so biodiversity. So yeah, it has all the keywords. So for someone that doesn't know uh, much about prickly pear cactus in mm-hmm. Kenya, uh, could you give a brief overview of like what interested you about the project and, sure. and some interesting bits that you may have figured out in the last few years? So the prickly pear cactus is native to North and Central America. Um, it's the same one you see in the Western U.S. It was brought over here in the 40s by the British Colonial District Commissioner in Doldol, which is about 90 minutes from where we're sitting right now. And it was planted as an ornamental in his garden. And as mo- it's sort of a common theme of Kenyan history where the white people just fuck everybody over. Um, <laughs> so then that spread out and has ruined the pastoralist lands. And so I'll, another thing you should know about Kenyan history is that when the British came, they put the Maasai onto reserves, much like the Native Americans in the U.S. Um, and the reserves were really shitty land. And traditionally they're um, nomadic pastoralists and now they were confined to this land that was already poor quality and then it became overgrazed really fast and that made it even more susceptible to invasion from this arid adapted cactus. And that's a problem because goats, being goats, will gorge on anything that's green during the dry season, including the cactus, and it's a laxative and blocks nutrient absorption and either kills them or makes them pretty much worthless by the time they go to market. Do they eat both the flesh and the fruit or just the fruit? During the dry season, they'll eat the flesh too. Yeah, they'll eat it down to the ground because it's the only thing that's green Mm -hmm. and they're thirsty for water. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I get the grants. Um, yeah. That is sexy. Yep. So, for some people like primates, even though baboons are terrifying animals and nobody in Kenya actually likes them. 
They're really important ecologically because they're omnivores. A lot of people don't know that they hunt and eat vertebrates as well as eating fruits. So they're pretty ecologically important and they happen to be the main dispersers of this plant. So that's the basic background. Yeah. Oh, they disperse so for people who aren't biology, uh, don't know a lot about seed dispersal. Um, so they eat the fruits, digest the fruits, and defecate out the seeds. And then I come along and pick up the scat, and my undergrad picks the scats out of the seeds, and then eventually I get a PhD. Sitching. <laughs> <laughs> Sitching. Yeah. 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 Nice. Well, I, I already learned something about the cactus because I didn't know that they were a laxative and that they blocked nutrient absorption. Yep. Oxalates. Cool. Oxalates are not good. Oh, and the other thing that made me interested in the project is it's really unique to walk into an invasive species situation and know the exact spot the first one was ever planted. Mm-hmm. I can go to the garden in Doldal and stand in the very first place in Apuncha ever existed wow. Kenya, which is, makes it pretty cool and is advantageous when you're sort of designing your questions and figuring out the landscape. It boggles my mind when I read some papers about invasive species that we're dealing with now. Like, so I study big-headed ants, uh, Phytoli megacephala, which were introduced to this area 10 or 15 years ago, mm-hmm. maybe. But there are some, like, natural historians that say it was more like 30 years. Mm-hmm. But either way, it was historically pretty recent. And I've read papers from, like, the 60s or even 50s that recommend big-headed ants as, like, a biological control agent for mm-hmm. taking care of birds and crap oh, on no. islands. <laughs> so, yeah, so it was, <laughs> like, it's just incredible, like, the attitude that people had about invasive species a couple centuries ago. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, European colonialists were, or colonialists were bringing in um, uh, birds from Europe into mm-hmm. North America, like, just yeah. as a... Like, look how great this place is now. And right. they just, like, fuck the land. I'm reading a book about the Congo right now, and this guy is going overland across the Congo, which is sort of a suicide mission. But mm-hmm. he notes that in what used to be really big Belgian cities in the 50s, now all, so they planted ornamental trees in the gardens, and now all the buildings are crumbled away, and just the trees are where you can tell where the Belgian settlements were, because they're non-native trees in the middle of the Congo forest. I worry about nothing. I'm sitting pretty impatient, but I know you gotta put in them hours. Anne Marie and I are talking about biological invasions, which often take a backseat to the more popular discussion of global climate change and environmental degradation or pollution. But don't be fooled, invasive species are one of the major causes of the huge loss of species our planet is currently experiencing. The scientific community has taken to calling this new age the Anthropocene, a geological epoch in which our planet is experiencing large changes because of the activity of humans. This epoch really began during the Industrial Revolution, but its effects became especially pronounced in the 21st century. Conservative estimates by ecologists say that we're losing species at a rate similar to the die-offs that occurred when the dinosaurs were wiped out. The 2016 annual meeting for the Ecological Society of America actually specifically focused on this topic, and for to understand and mitigate this extinction-level event, scientists of many disciplines will have to work together. Invasive species can be a problem when they set up shop in a new area because they often don't have any natural predators in their new home. Conservation managers use something called a biological control agent to try to limit the spread of or even exterminate the invasive species. That word, biological control agent, is just a term for a new species that can compete with the problematic invader either by eating all of its food or by preying on the invader directly. 
So obviously, you're playing with fire by introducing a second alien species to a system, but sometimes that's the only real solution. <laughs> They've introduced a biocontrol agent for the cactus here, um, and that's thinning it out, but I don't think it's going to take care of it. They tried the mm -hmm. same thing in South Africa, and it didn't. they ended up using herbicides instead. Yeah. Because the, um, the insect could thin it out, but not eradicate it. So I've heard of two insects that are used for prickly mm -hmm. cactus. One is with the, um, the cactoblastis moth. Yeah. So that was not introduced here. That was right? not introduced here. So when they introduced that in South Africa, um, it turned out that the baboons also like to eat moth grubs, and so the moth grubs attracted them to the cactus more, so they were eating more cactus and eating all the grubs. So being South Africa, their solution to that was just to shoot all the baboons. So, uh, <laughs> so they didn't try that one here. It's the cochineal insect that's uh -huh. here, which looks just like a little white fuzz on the cactus. It looks more like a fungus than an insect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you squish yeah. it, it's purple. When you squish it, it's purple. If you ever buy organic yogurt that's pink, it pro the dye probably comes from cochineal insect shells. Because it's used as a food, a natural food coloring. Yeah. Yep. That was the only source of that color mm -hmm. or that food coloring for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, cochineal, like hemipteran insects, mm -hmm. squishing them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can't actually call cochineals bugs because they're hemipterans, which yep. are the true bugs. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now you know what kind of podcast you're on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A quick note about what Anne Marie was just talking about. Cochineal bugs are a small insect in the order Hemiptera. It's actually the only order of insects that can be truly called bugs. For instance, a lady bug is actually in the order Coleoptera, and so the proper way to refer to them is as a lady beetle. You'll really clean up at parties with trivia like that. But moving on. Gabby works with Todd Palmer, a professor at the University of Florida who studies a partnership between ants and acacia trees that are found on the Lycipia Plateau of Kenya. He also happens to be my advisor. The whistling thorn acacia trees, which we'll just call acacias from this point on, are able to form swollen thorns all over their canopy. And a few species of ants will actually hollow out those thorns and live inside of them. They collect nectar from the acacia leaves, and they in turn provide protection from pests and parasites and even from elephants. So this partnership is so effective that the acacias account for over 95% of the tree cover in these savannas. A single tree species, as far as the eye can see. It's, it's honestly really incredible. We've studied these trees and ants for over 20 years now, but there are still many mysteries about how the system works. Gabby works with Todd on a project called the Five-Year Ant Removal Treatment, which, yes, when you turn it into an acronym, it makes uh, the acronym FART. So I have a feeling that that was intentional, but even though we know that there are four ant species that can live on the acacias, and that some of those ants are better defenders than others, we're still trying to understand how those ants affect the tree's development. Imagine if, when you were young, your immune system had been replaced with some alternative to white blood cells. The replacement is much stronger, it keeps you from getting sick, but it also takes up a ton of energy. Maybe as a kid you don't get sick at all, but you don't have any energy left for growth. So Gabby studies 
the ontogeny of these trees, which basically means that she studies their life history and how their past development affects their future fitness. So ecology really is just, it's the study of the economy of nature, where dollars and cents are replaced by calories and nutrients, and organisms have to effectively use those materials or they die out. done um, looks at acacia trees at different life stages so a lot of studies have been done before on just like one to two meter acacia trees which you know we know a lot about them but we don't know much about what happens from when they're saplings all the way up to you know 80 100 year old trees and so by looking at the trees that are smaller and younger um, saplings have a pretty hard time surviving out in um, out in the savanna, just because, you know, they get trampled and they're, you know, easy, easy target, especially if ants haven't colonized them yet. So the project looks at what happens when you take, take ants away at different um, life stages and kind of what the effects of herbivory are and kind of how these trees make it out in the savanna mm -hmm. when the ants are either there or not. And so why are the ants important to those acacia trees? So the, the ants defend the acacias, um, and so in return the acacias provide um, food and shelter. So it's a whole, whole little system going mm -hmm. on there. And we've actually been doing a project this week. I guess this is really the first day where we actually got it rolling. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, so could you explain a little bit about <laughs> the, what we did today and which I thought was really exciting and really cool. Um, so, um, but it, it kind of makes intuitive sense with the stuff that we did. So could you try to explain it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So we went to a site um, where the invasive uh, big-headed ants are. And so they've taken over the acacias where the native ants usually are and like where the, it kind of, it's like disrupted this mutualism. Um, so the big-headed ants don't really defend the acacias anymore. And so they get knocked over and just, you know, lots of uh, insect herbivory. So we wanted to sort of test like how much they would defend these trees and um, pinned uh, beetles, live beetles mm -hmm. to the trees <laughs> to see how the, uh, the invasive ants would react to that. And um, we actually, we didn't get much response at all. Um, usually the native ants will, as soon as there's a, um, any kind of bug on the tree, they'll, one of them will come up to it and um, signal like an alarm pheromone and get the rest of them to swarm and um, start fighting it and attacking it to get it to leave the tree. Uh, but these big-headed big ants do, don't do anything like that. Um, <laughs> most of the time they don't even find the beetle, um, so we can just like munch away and destroy the tree. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that was pretty interesting and I think could have pretty significant implications. Yeah, yeah. I'm like that's so sick. excited about this project. <laughs> yeah. it, this has actually just been a test to see if you're a psychopath and you've been yeah. pinning beetles to trees all day. In case and, you're wondering, you're in the yeah. club, fucking psychopath. So, so Gabby's not a psychopath because every time she pins one to a tree, she says like under her breath like, sorry bud, like, I'm sorry little guy. And then like as, when, when the five minutes are up, so during over five minutes we monitor this beetle and we see how many ants are like ripping its legs off and Jeez. pulling its wings off. It's so cool, <laughs> and like, <laughs> yeah, and yet at the this end of it- This is what Sid from Toy Story grows up to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a trash man in Toy Story 3. I'm oh, a biologist. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
you you've passed with flying colors. You're not a psychopath, mm-hmm. but yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's what happens when you're out here for mm-hmm. months at a time. Is we spend. I, I've been out here for almost three months, and I've been seeing the same people, the same twenty five people or so the entire time. Mm-hmm. You go a little bit crazy, mm-hmm. kind of lose your your social skills at a research center. But yeah. I mean, but it's fun, you know. And I think we'll you end up at a research. Yeah, <laughs> most people who end up at research centers didn't have a whole lot of social That's skills. That's true. To lose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Our conversation got sidetracked by a kind of serendipitous phenomenon. Gabby and Sam both smelled a pungent, volatile chemical coming from one of the nearby bushes. But I actually left in this part of the podcast because it was related a bit to Gabby's research. Oh my god, the nasty bush bar? Whatever. <laughs> nasty bush. Flower. Do you smell? Whatever. It is. So there's this plant. I don't know what, what the plant it? is, Doesn't but it know? gives off this disgusting, mm-hmm. like, dirty feet and old, wet, moldy wet, clothes. Moldy clothes Doesn't it smell like BBR? It does. It yeah. totally does. So it's yeah. It's there's a um, chromatic aster nigriceps is one of the acacia ant species that <laughs> they live on acacias, and they like when they spread alarm pheromones, it smells exactly like this. And it scares off yeah. elephants. Yeah. So it smells like a bunch of farts. Yeah, it kind of does. Mixed with bananas a little bit. No, I'm not smelling it. Well, I'll pick it off then. Okay. <laughs> it's also the plant that we're smelling, not the ant. Maybe. <laughs> Listen, so, <laughs> the death plant with a tone of banana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for yeah, being that's the mediator also, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the star, this is not going to work. <laughs> I have a remnant of social skills left. <laughs> What we were just discussing might actually be an example of convergent evolution going on in the savanna. So to put this in perspective, we smelled some sort of volatile chemical that was being put out by a climbing liana that was wrapped around one of the trees by our porch. This chemical smelled almost exactly like the alarm pheromones that one of Gabby's acacia ants can spray into the air to warn the rest of its colony about attacks coming from elephants or giraffes or other destructive animals. And previous studies have shown that those herbivores can smell this pheromone and then will actually avoid branches um, to avoid being bitten or stung. Like I said before, ecology is the study of the economy of nature. Nothing comes for free, and a behavior or a trait in a species often has to be beneficial in order for it to be... uh... Like I said before, ecology is the study of the economy of nature. Nothing comes for free, and a behavior or a trait in a species often has to be beneficial in order for it to become common over time. At the very least, it can't negatively impact the survival of an individual, or else all the individuals with that trait will die out, and the trait will be lost to time. Similar phenomena are found in other systems. For instance, some perfectly harmless butterfly species have developed markings that look like a monarch butterfly. The monarch can store toxins in its body, which will cause vomiting for anything that tries to eat it. So many birds instinctually avoid the monarchs and the mimics that look like them because they don't want to risk being poisoned. But nobody is studying this weird 
putrid vine next to our porch yet. Is it possible that this plant actually receives some benefit from producing this pheromone? Maybe it developed a way to smell like an an angry... Maybe it developed a way to smell like an angry ant colony through convergent evolution. These simple observations are how research ideas start. You ask a simple question, and then you design an experiment to measure individual causes and outcomes for that phenomenon. Everyone did this as a little kid, playing in the park or in their yard. And if you want to study the natural sciences, just tap into that curiosity again. As we wind down, I asked these scientists about their cultural experience in Kenya, and we talked about some of the appreciation that they gained for the Kenyan people, especially the ones that live out here in Laikipia, in a place that Americans might call the fringe. So in 2014, when I was coming out here, I basically tried to have zero expectations of what was mm -hmm. going to happen. And that worked out really well, because Kenya is such a beautiful place. And it's way more diverse than I thought it was going to be. And I met way more people who shaped my life, Westerners and Kenyans. And it just totally changed my outlook on life. So the first trip was very, like, yeah, looking back, it's very, very nostalgic and mm -hmm. um, things like that. So coming out here a second time was interesting because I did have expectations. I knew some things, like, researchers were awkward as hell. No one <laughs> knows how to dance, except for the Kenyans, mm -hmm. so... No, I, I knew that Impala was going to be a lot of fun. I also packed a lot lighter this time than last time, so that was a plus. It was also fun knowing more Swahili the second time around, just because you, you get to interact with the field text a lot differently than yeah. if you were just speaking in English. And this did place is just beautiful, yeah. yeah. Did you take Swahili courses? I maybe? did, okay. yeah. I took a semester before I came in 2014. Okay. And then when I was here, our whole crew took Swahili, mm -hmm. so... I was at, like, an intermediate level. Wow. Yeah, and then plus being immersed. So when I was here, I did a homestay. I did a few different homestays, mm -hmm. so I was just completely immersed. Um, learned a lot of Swahili then. A lot of slang Swahili. Um, so that was really cool and helpful. Mm -hmm. And then I forgot most of it when I came back out here. So I could understand a lot, but it took me a while to kind of process it and, and yeah. translate back into it. Yeah. So Tanzanian Swahili is beautiful, mm -hmm. and they speak it like perfectly, like textbook perfect. So it's really easy to understand. And then Kenyan Swahili is a lot of slang. Yeah, there's no rules. There's no rules in Kenya. There's yeah. no rules here. You can butcher the language and like people still basically understand what yeah. you're saying. Or you could speak it perfectly and people <laughs> won't understand what yeah. you're saying. But yeah, I mean, just making an effort, you can see people's faces change in the way they interact with you. I then asked Anne-Marie about what it was like to live at a research station for a long time. Being away from your home culture for a long stretch, you start to miss out on cultural events and, and memes. We actually recorded this about two weeks after the release of Pokemon Go, which caused <laughs> uh, many head-scratching conversations at our dinner table. We were far away from mobile data and GPS coverage. Also, we talk a bit about 
Nico Atsume, aka the Cat Game, which caught on a bit at our research center because it didn't require any data connection. Even for researchers out in the middle of beautiful Kenya, sometimes you have to find a way to pass the time. So just for like historical context, Pokemon Go came out this week and in Impala we've been seeing all these things on Facebook about people following like finding fake wildlife on their phones in the States and all that stuff. And meanwhile we're like, hey Hornbill, get out of my cereal and hey Hyrax, yeah. hey monkey, stop stealing my banana. Yeah, yeah, it's been interesting. Yeah, we were driving to El Karama today and we were like taking this back road. Mm -hmm. to El Karama is a ranch that's right next to Impala. Um, and... We ended up behind like six or seven zebra that were just hauling ass in front of us. And I kind of had this moment where I realized that I was annoyed by these beautiful animals running in front of me because they were like kind of taking up the road. And, and people so, in the States are chasing digital animals all over uh -huh. the place because they don't have any beautiful animals to look mm -hmm. at. Yeah. Is the point of that to get people off of their computers? I think it's to asses. get people off their asses. Yeah. Hmm. Apparently there have been like, That's so, so the very first day it was out, somebody playing in Wyoming found a body in a river. So, when they were after a Pokemon, <laughs> it's really just like. Yeah. And also, I feel like it commodifies nature a bit because you gotta catch them all. Like, why do you have to? Why does it have to be in your possession for it to mm -hmm. be valuable? Can't you just enjoy watching the Pokemon wander around the river among the dead bodies? Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Goes back to your <laughs> cat <laughs> game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have to catch them or just take photos of them? Yeah. So you put out cat food mm -hmm. and various toys, <laughs> and the cats come in, and then you take pictures of them. Did I tell you that I hate you? Yes. <laughs> Anyone who's confused right now should go back to the part of the podcast where we talked about social aptness at research stations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm mesmerized by my phone as soon as I touch down in the U.S. because of all the things it can do. I dance around the darkness down on Billie Jean Road. If I ain't to it, then we still will be broke. Thought I got the formula, bon appetit. I got a beat in case my baby Baba ever leak. Wise beyond my years, but way behind my peak. You gotta eat. This is a step to my princess. Point of interest. Fourth and inches. Hallelujah. The kid grew up. The crowd cheered. The child booyah. Mic drop. I walk home. I also asked these three if they missed anything from back home. At this point, everyone had just about wrapped up their research projects, so it was time to get back to life in the U.S. They mention a reverse culture shock when they return. This is somewhat common in students that study abroad, whether it's in Eastern or Western cultures, but I think that people that go to rural Kenya experience a huge contrast in culture, behavior, and personal interactions when they go back to the fast-paced, expensive, and competitive culture back in the United States. I don't care about so you're going back to the States soon-ish? Mm. I leave tomorrow morning after two months here, which is crazy. It, just, mm -hmm. it went by so fast. The days are long, but the weeks go by really fast. So it's a really good way to describe it here. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So this is a longer stay than your last one, right? Yeah, at Impala this is a longer stay. Okay. So when I was in country last time I was here for four months. Mm -hmm. And then now I'm just here for two. Trying to cram it all into it. So are you missing anything back home? Sushi. 
Is that a thing to miss? Yeah. 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 Sushi. I don't know. I Kenya, as corny as this is going to sound, Kenya really is like a second home to me. Yeah. I definitely look forward to yeah. the three months out of the year that yeah. I spent here for the mm-hmm. other nine months of the year. <laughs> and it's funny. So last time when I got home, I was like immediately searching for ways to get back. But it's scary this time because I don't know when I'll be back. Mm-hmm. I think you'll be back. Yeah. And Paula has a way of... Sucking people back in. It's a yeah. vortex. Mm-hmm. It is a vortex. I know, it's hard to imagine not coming back. Yeah. After oh, spending, yeah. like, a few months out here. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not... I don't know when I'm coming back after I leave. Yeah. In a couple of weeks, and that's weird. Because it it's is. just always been, like, half my... So, that being out here for only two and a half months is unusual for me. Usually I'm here for, like, five or six. And when you spend so much time in the country, you get so connected to it. And to yeah. the people. And the you make people... such deep connections. The staff at the research station, like, as soon as I show back up, everyone remembers me, everyone gives me a hug. It's like, mm-hmm. people are more excited to see me than my own family when I go home for the holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's just nice. Yeah, I don't think it's silly to call this a second home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely know what you're talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always got, like, reverse culture shock last time. Like, going home. I get that a lot. Because I often fly back into Tennessee, yeah. <laughs> so everybody's very white and very loud and very thick. And it's also, and, yeah, because, like, everyone wants to know about this place that's so exotic to them mm-hmm. that they've been, and they're like, oh, let me ask you all these questions, and yeah. it's almost sometimes hard to find words to describe it unless you've Absolutely. been here, mm-hmm. and so yeah. I find myself struggling, but, like, I also want these people to share this with me, mm-hmm. so, yeah, and then walking in to like a grocery store and seeing everything you could possibly need for like double the price that you can get it here <laughs> it's crazy yeah. my first trip to target after i would get back from the states usually takes or get back to the states usually takes like three hours because you'd be amazed at the number of just like weird new products they introduce mm-hmm. every six months it takes me like i'll comb did you know there are seven types of captain crunch what? Yeah, like the first time after I got back, the first time I got back from Kenya, I remember just standing there thinking, "Huh, I wonder who was like." There are only six kinds of Captain Crunch. I <laughs> 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 need another one. Yeah, um, good use of our resources. Yeah. That was one of the first things that I bought when I got back from Captain Kenya last Crunch. year. Not Captain Crunch. That okay. is why there are it seven. Was, <laughs> yeah. No, I got. So we were talking about. Cocoa Krispies out oh. here for like two weeks straight. Ew. There was, there was, it wasn't even me. Somebody else in our little group of research friends was just looking forward to Cocoa Krispies with <laughs> her entire soul. And um, yeah, I got back and I saw it and I was like, this looks amazing. <laughs> so yeah. You know what's even better than Cocoa Krispies? Count Chocula. Mm-hmm. But it's seasonal. You can only buy, so you have to buy like 12 boxes during October, obviously. Hmm. Oh, I didn't know it was seasonal. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What makes it better? It has marshmallows, chocolate marshmallows in it. It's like oh. chocolate lucky charms on it. It's like chocolate oh. lucky charms, yeah. It's so good. Mm-hmm. I agree. And it has bats. <laughs> Which are super cooler. cooler. Yeah. <laughs> Gabby and I were totally Damn like Sam. freaking out. <laughs> what? We, we all sing the same thing. I, know, I love it! <laughs> Clearly yes. spending too much time together. I'm yeah, like, we spent <laughs> a whole Sunday laying in a hammock sharing jelly beans <laughs> and guessing the flavors, but not the cinnamon kind. <laughs> I like the cinnamon kind. They're bright red, Burn and they have, yeah. they have little red or yellow warts of mm-hmm. death on them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you're going to die. Well, so these two have mentioned their... Uh, that they're leaving and don't know when they're coming back, not to make it somber at all. Okay. But Gabby, do you have any plans on what you're doing after you leave here? 
Uh, well, I still have another year of undergrad uh, to get through, mm-hmm. and I think my experience out here has definitely sort of made me realize even more that I want to go to grad school. Um, I still don't know exactly like what for um, or when, but yeah, kind of like they were saying, I just I can't imagine not coming back out here. Um, it's been such a cool and special place for me to just you know being a field school student last year and then having the opportunity to come back and be out here longer has just been you know so great and I I love everything that we've done and the people you meet in this field and the connections you can make it's really great but it is it's sad leaving not knowing the next time you'll be back in in a place like this I don't know if it's the amount of time that we spend here or if it's literally something different about the place that we're in probably the the ladder, mm-hmm. but yeah. yeah, it is definitely hard to leave. I want to drive away in the night. Headlights call my name. I think altogether, Gabby, Sam, and Anne Marie touched on the things that draw young scientists to ecology and to conservation. In some rare parts of our planet where a human industry hasn't yet destroyed the forests and stripped the soil, we can still find these incredible natural communities that are full of beauty and questions. In Kenya, many of the people that we work with come from tribes that have lived there since the beginning of mankind. The questions that we ask are often closely tied to the well-being of both humans and of other species. Beyond the scientific questions, the opportunity to explore a culture, a landscape that is so completely unlike your home, it it calls to the explorer in us. And sure, it's hard to make money doing it, but every now and then you get to spend a day in a hammock, eating jelly beans while monkeys and hyrax run around nearby. I finally asked them if they had figured out their spirit animals during their time in Kenya. Starting with Sam, our guest of honor, really. Um, Aw, thank you. What would you say your spirit animal is, if you care to share? You don't have to if you don't want to. No. Um, My spirit animal is dope. Um, I'm a plains (laughs) zebra because they have really big butts and they're sassy as hell. (laughs) So that sums me up. Mm -hmm. Yes. So do you... um, do you connect with your like impala spirit animal enough to call it your spirit animal, or do you think that you have another animal that defines you better in like a global sense? Um, I think the plain zebra is probably my defining spirit animal. Okay. Yeah, I haven't really actually I haven't really found another one. So. So plain zebra, Emery, <laughs> what is your spirit animal? My impala spirit animal is the giraffe because I'm blondish and have awkwardly long legs. Okay. Somewhat gregarious, still find me on my own sometimes. Awkward as hell. Awkward as hell. <laughs> yeah. Every day's, But also yeah. super cool. Yeah, pretty chill, pretty chill. Mm-hmm. Run pretty fast, just don't look like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. Gabby, have you figured yours out yet? Mm. You have to be a predator, but like a, like a- I told you Like a life one, you know? Mm. Something that's is cool and calm, but then speaker strikes out of nowhere. Yeah, I don't 
know. Is I I'm not sure I have one yet. I haven't figured it out. I I've think you're told, a leopard. I've been told leopard, but can anyone really be a leopard? No, yeah, I leopard just, leopard think she's a leopard. Like nobody's measured up to it yet, but I think Gabby might be a leopard. Yeah, yeah. leopard. Wow, yeah. I'm honored. Yeah. You should we, love leopard. <laughs> if you try to bullshit your spirit <laughs> in, well, people will know. Like you mm-hmm. can't just say like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, this cool thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People yeah. Call you yeah. sort of have to agree on it too. I mm-hmm. think you need yeah. sort of a whole consensus. Yeah. You know, you have the right one. You just know. All right. Thank you, yeah. you guys, for, for showing up. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I think that since this recording, Gabby has explored more possible spirit animals, but she's definitely a predator. Maybe she can tell us what she discovered if she's on the podcast again. If you want to learn more about the research that Gabby does for the Palmer Lab, check out thepalmerlab.com. Publications are periodically added to the website, though Gabby's work is still in the manuscript stage as of March 2017. Anne-Marie's research with Sam can be further explored at jakegoheen.com, and you can read more about her previous projects on her Scientific American blog. Both links are in the description. Finally, for a list of the music featured in this episode, check out the episode notes in the podcast description. We'll close out the show listening to Freedom by Queen Bee herself, featuring Kendrick Lamar. Like I said earlier, being detached from American society and culture can make you miss out on a lot of trends. Like Pokemon Go, superhero movies, and whatever else is going on in the U.S. But we still went to great lengths to obtain mp3s of lemonade over a really slow internet connection like i said at the top of the show i wasn't able to schedule a time with my guest co-host from last episode but i'm gonna really try to bring back mike for my final episode of season one in april we'll talk about a crew that's been studying baboons in lycipia for a whole year until next time be kind do good things thanks for listening this has been ecotones May the last one burn into flame